have your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 18. John 18. We've been studying the Gospel of John in our afternoon services and this afternoon we come to John's record of denial of Christ by Peter. You pray with me as we read God's word together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that every word comes through your hands. Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would give me the words to speak well of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name I pray. Amen. So we'll read two sections. If you were with us last week, we read sections in and around this. But John 18, 15 to 18, and then 25 to 27. So John 18, verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And we'll pick up at verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, the relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. And these verses, as they come not only in John, but in the other gospel writers, I find to be some of the most moving, touching and challenging of all the events that surround the hours immediately prior to the crucifixion, to the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. And I want to suggest that if we're not in some measure moved by what we read, then there is something wrong with our hearts. And if we're so naive to believe that we are at the same time removed from the possibility of the actuality of what befell Peter, befalling us, then there is not only something wrong with our hearts, but something wrong with our heads in the way that we think. As I look at the events of the denial of Peter and find myself mirrored in his dreadful inability to grapple and to grasp with his life as it seems to fracture right in front of him. All of his great boasts, all of his great claims, all of his great desires of who he is going to be and what he will become suddenly dashed, crushed in a moment, just as Jesus said would happen. My task this afternoon is relatively straightforward, as in anyone who would teach the Word of God is to read what the Scriptures say, and is enabled by the Holy Spirit to try to explain it, and to ask God that he would help us to apply it to our lives. 
So just a couple of questions here, three questions. What took Peter to the courtyard? Then what led to his failure? What led to his defeat? And what are we able to learn? How do we apply that to our own lives? So what was it that took Peter to the courtyard? There is nothing in John's Gospel which allows us to answer that particular question specifically. Nothing which allows us to pinpoint Peter's motivation. And apart from one statement in Matthew's Gospel, we're left actually just with the pieces, if you like, of the puzzle of Peter's life, of Peter's experience, to put them together in a way that would be accurate and be devoid of undue dogmatism. But the first thing, and I think it's important to say this, we must give credit where credit is due. And I believe credit is due to Peter in the circumstances. And that is, Peter could never have been involved in such a dreadful failure if there had not been something in him to put him in this place in the first instance from which to be he was to be involved in the failure. Let's seek to answer the question then with a couple of other questions. What took him to the courtyard? Curiosity? Was it curiosity that took Peter to the courtyard? Matthew 26, verse 58, says, And Peter was following him at a distance. And it says, As far as the courtyard of the high priest. And in Matthew it says, Going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So Matthew tells us that one of the reasons that Peter went to the courtyard was to see how things were going to pan out, how things were going to fall out at the end. But this isn't the curiosity of an idle bystander. It's not a curiosity, you know, if, if, you, if you hear a loud collision in the street, you immediately run out to see what the noise was. If there was curiosity on behalf of Peter, as Matthew says there was, then his curiosity was born of a deep concern. So that must have been part of it. Was it loyalty that took Peter to the courtyard. John 13, verse 36 says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. The famous words of Peter, do you think Peter meant it? Absolutely, yes, he did. Absolutely, he meant it. He was uttering there the deep, conviction of his heart and as the events have proceeded and Christ has undergone, remember the mockery of that cruel trial from Annas and Caiaphas in the midst of it all Peter made his way with John into the courtyard so I would say it was partly curiosity out of deep concern but partly loyalty partly loyalty was it bravery was it bravery that took the Apostle Peter to the courtyard? And I think there was, I think it was, I think there was a sense where he was brave. Much is made of Peter's fear, but Peter was brave. We can criticise him, and many preachers do, for chopping off Malchus's ear, the servant's ear. But at least he took his sword out. At least he did something. 
What were the other guys doing? What were the other guys doing? And I'm not sure, because they were so super spiritual that they didn't draw their sword. I think Peter was being true to form. Come on, he said, there's something that needs doing in this situation, and out comes his sword, and he has a gun. So he was brave, I think, against phenomenal odds, hundreds of people. So I think, yes, yes, it was curiosity in a right sense, yes, it was loyalty, and I think it was bravery that led Peter to the courtyard. Was it bravado, which is different from bravery? Was it that he'd put himself out on, on a limb, if you like, with, with all of his big, big statements, with all of his bold statements, and now he kind of felt compelled that his actions would match his statements. After Jesus had told Peter of Satan's desire to sift them as wheat, Luke 22, verse 33, Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And in Mark's account, Mark 14, verse 30, Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, twice you will deny me three times. But he said em em emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Peter opens his mouth more than most. And if you open your mouth more than most, even when the others see the same thing, you will be in first. But his great statements of what he was going to do, his great statements were now on the line. He said all of these things, these great big things. Christ is bound, taken away. Doubtless the rest of them who hadn't said the same things so, so, you know, at least so loudly, so verbally, would turn and look at Peter and say, okay, what are you going to do now? Perhaps it was sheerly, sheer compelling sense of bravado that took him to the courtyard. Was it presumption? Mark 14, 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Fairly straightforward statement. They can all look around and see who all is. He says, you will all fall away. And Peter says, even though all they, they all fall away, I will not. So it is all, he is part of the all. And even if they all fall away, he will not. So was it presumptuous in part? Was it love that took Peter to the courtyard? It was as well. Peter loved Jesus. Peter loved Jesus with a passion. I think everything Peter said, he genuinely believed. He genuinely wanted to be true. It was a longing of his heart that he would be the very epitome of the convictions that he had spoken those bold things that he spoke. And in fact, the painful process of restoration, which comes in John 21, is a clear indication of how much Peter loved the Lord Jesus. You remember Peter asked, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And every time Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Did he love him any less in these moments? I'm sure Peter loved Jesus with all of his heart. But his love is tested in a different crucible 
It's tested in the crucible of loneliness. It's tested in the crucible of isolation. In the realm of fear. And whether he likes it or not. He does not come up with the grades that he might have expected, he might have hoped for. What took Peter to the courtyard? Not one of these suggestions or even multiples we could add to it can sufficiently answer the question. Peter is an enigma in those moments. And the complexity of who Peter is is wrapped up in what he does, how he falls, how he feels. What led to his defeat then, secondly? Second question, what led to Peter's failure? Now, this is great sermon material. I've heard of many sermons. You could preach terrific sermons on Matthew 26, 58 that he followed at a distance. You could preach a great sermon on that. We're told here, also in chapter 18, it was cold. People were warming themselves around the fire. I'm sure you may have heard a message in your time that Peter was standing with them, warming himself at the world's fire. So you could have an application that Peter was following at a distance, he was warming himself at the, the world's fire, but it spiritualises a simple statement of fact. I don't believe it's a teaching point necessarily. It's a descriptive element. Like it was hot or cold, it was warm, or as it usually is around here, rainy. And John is painting the scene for us. So we could, we could spiritualise that and we could preach on the dangers of warming yourself at the world's fire. You could preach a good sermon on that. I don't believe that either at a distance or by the fire explains what led to his failure. What led to Peter's failure? Let me give you four suggestions in an ascending order, the least important to perhaps to the most. He was defeated, number one, because he took the easy route road out. He took the easy route. He moves in a moment from the tremendous ability to say, you're the Christ, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, to, I don't know, I'm not, you know, I'm not with him. It's the same Peter in a moment. You're the Christ. I have no idea what you're talking about. Same Peter, same fellow. Tremendous statement, Matthew 16. And now, not me, I'm not with them. What did he do? He went with the prevailing mood. He changed his colours to suit his circumstance. And his downfall was in part due to that he succumbed to the pressure and went with the crowd. There were no bouquets being given that night for being a follower of Jesus Christ. If you wanted to be in the majority, if you wanted to be liked by the world, you, you needed not just to stand with them, but you needed to share their convictions. He was taken by surprise. He told his first lie. And without fully realising it, he had opted for comfort in the immediate rather than commendation in the long run. That's a really important lesson. He opted for immediate comfort rather than commendation in the long run. May I say to you that every subtle, immediate declension in the realm of faith, when you and I are guilty of denial, 
will at least have some part of this attached to it, that we are confronted by the long road, the hard road, the difficult road, and in the moment, we take the easy way out. In the moment, we go for instant gratification, rather than a delayed gratification of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. The reason was Peter took the easy route. It's easy to live with a dichotomy between what we do on Sunday and here, when I'm with the Lord's people, when I'm engaged in worship, in fellowship, and I have you know, a persona, a style, an approach. But on another day, in another place, do you find me laughing at the same jokes the world laugh at? Do I share the same philosophy as the world shares? Do I not stand up when somebody says something that's against Christ? Do I embrace the same lifestyle as the world embraces? Why? Because it's easy. Because it's easy. It's not easy to stand up at school and be the odd one out. But friends, it's better to be a nerd for Jesus Christ today, to be a fool for Jesus Christ today, and know the sunshine of his smile on your life, than hear the applause of a godless society that neither knows up from down nor in from out. Don't take the easy route. Please don't take the easy route. Stand. Stand for Jesus. Secondly, he panicked. He literally panicked. Peter had made tremendous statements of undying loyalty. And in an instant, he's bowled over by the boldness and the searching gaze of a servant girl. It's interesting in verse 17, she says, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. It seems to me that there was no question about the fact that John, you know, the other disciple, was one of Christ's disciples. She knew, others knew. And if John was with Jesus, and Peter was with John, it's a straightforward inference on the part of the servant girl to say, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Or Peter could have said, I'm with John. I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. And in the moment he said, I am not. Do you think he planned to say that? Do you think if anyone had said, if anyone asked me, I'm going to say I'm not? The same Peter who said that if everyone else falls away, I will never fall away? The same Peter who was the only one who drew out his sword and chopped? No, in a moment panic took over his life. He panicked. And it's not too difficult to discover a correlation, a direct line between prayerlessness, prayerlessness and panic. Then and now, Luke 22 verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. I don't pray that half enough that the Lord would keep me from temptation. Because the panic level of our lives is probably somewhere in direct proportion to the place of prayer in our lives. Lord, keep me from temptation. Lord, please keep me from denying you. Is it ever your prayer? Lord, keep me. Peter 
slept when he should have prayed and he panicked when he should have stood firm. Thirdly, Peter did not know himself in the sense that when we come to Christ and begin to follow him, when we step out on the journey of faith, when we become the new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, and as we look at the way that God has put us together, we need to come to terms with who we are and what we are and how God made us. Peter had forgotten a fundamental truth that is true of men and women in general. Peter had forgotten Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Peter forgot he had a deceitful heart. And when we forget that we have a deceitful heart, we're only a hop, skip and jump away from the same type of declension. But beyond that, Peter didn't know himself, know himself as an individual. Do you know yourself as an individual? Are you honest about that? Because Peter had never really faced up to the fact that he was, in, we can see it, he was impulsive, that he was impetuous, that he was by nature a wee bit shaky, and he was too easily excited. All of those things we can tell by reading the Gospel accounts. But did Peter know that? All the way that we study Peter in John and the rest of the Gospels, we see this to be the case. Remember when Jesus walked on water to the disciples during the fourth watch of the night, Matthew 14, the disciples saw him walking on the water. They were terrified and said, is it, it, it is a ghost. They cried out with fear. Immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Who speaks first? We all know it's Peter. And what does he say? First word is Lord. It's okay. So far, so good. He says Lord. And then the next three words, he blows it out of the window. If it is you. Well, if it's not the Lord, who else was it? <laughs> so he doesn't really want to get overboard just yet. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him and said, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? He was the only one who got out of the boat, but once out of the boat, stay stepping out. He was impetuous. He was buffeted. He was easily blown off course. He didn't really know himself. There are peculiar challenges in the realm of temptation that present themselves to us as individuals. That's my point. Because of the way that God has made us and we need to be aware of that. There are areas that the devil attacks me in my life that you probably will be totally immune from. But we need to know how God put us together. And we need to come to a realistic understanding of ourselves. Peter said, sorry, Paul says, let no one among you think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. So we know we have to think of ourselves. You know, we have to think of ourselves. There's a thinking about ourselves that is right. If we think about ourselves and think wrongly, then I think that we can put ourselves in positions of peculiar temptation that we're unable to respond in a godly way. 
So not only did Peter not know himself, but he thought he knew himself better than Jesus Christ did. You, are, you and I may not know ourselves, but we may still think that Christ knows best. I hope we do. Peter had frequently made it clear that he thought he had an angle on things that even Jesus didn't have. If you think about what Peter's testimony, Mark 14 again, Jesus said, you will all fall, fall away. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Even if they fall away, I won't. And Peter is saying, thank you, Jesus, but I know better than you. Luke 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon. And, and, and if you remember his name, remember from John, John 1, when he brought him to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. You know, Simon, your name is Mr. Shaky. I'm going to make you Mr. Rock. Simon, Simon. Luke 22, verse 31. Behold, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Did he mean it? He meant it, even though he didn't know what he was saying half the time. Not only was he misunderstanding himself, but he was denying the divine wisdom of Jesus Christ as he looked into his eyes and told him what was about to happen. How much we could be saved from if we realised that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And he's told us things in his word that we would do well to pay attention to. Finally and quickly to our third question, what are we able to learn from these events? What are we able to learn from this moving story of Peter's denial? Well, I find myself mirrored in these events. We think we know everything, we don't. And that's why when we make our journey through life and as we face the possibility of defeat, as we face the possibility of declension, Reads a common understanding of the fact that what Jesus Christ says in his word is true. It is right. It is good for us. It must be applied. If we're to be people of the word, his word must be bowed to. What are the lessons that we can learn from this incident? Well, there are many. Let me give you a few that just stood out to me. Moments or periods of great victory and usefulness are often the forerunners of great defeat. It should draw us to our knees. It should make us pray. It's true in biblical history. Second Chronicles 26 verse 15. Uzziah, he made machines to be in the towers, to shoot arrows and great stones. His fame spread far. He was marvellously helped till he was strong. Uzziah. Verse 16, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Uzziah, Peter, Matthew 16. Remember Peter's wonderful confession of Christ? Matthew 16, verse 16, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Wonderful. 
wonderful commendation for Peter. A wonderful moment of usefulness and success. You only have to read to the 22nd verse. That's 16, 22 minus 16. That's six verses. Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now listen to this. Jesus says, I'm going to be killed. On the third day you'll be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. There is the enigma between, because his loyalty and his love's there, what Peter is saying is, Lord, I don't want you to die. I love you. I want you to stay. But at the same time, Peter's saying, I know, you do not know. I'm the one who said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. In the moment, Peter moves from, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, to get behind me, Satan. In the moments of your apparent success, in the times of great victory, when people begin to call your name, speak of you abroad, beware, beware. The moments of greatest peril. The simple truth is that pride cometh before a fall. The second lesson is that we need, therefore, to humbly rely on Christ's strength and never on our own strength. Book of Common Prayer says, Lord, save thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Timothy was timid. Paul said, I do not want you to be timid. I want you to find your strength in Christ. Look, God looks into our hearts. He knows exactly where we are. And he says to us, if you would go through life for me, if you would be victorious for me, make sure you never rely on your own strength but you rely on the power that comes alone from him, God. Third lesson is watchfulness and prayerfulness are tied together in the purposes of God. Today, before the throne of God, Christ intercedes for you and me while we fail in intercession for others. I think about that, you know, that Christ intercedes for us before the throne of grace. Do you intercede for others? Do you stand in the gap for others? It's no surprise in Ephesians 6 as Paul urged believers in relation to the onslaught of the evil one in seeking to be victorious in the battle of faith. He says, I want you to make sure you're alert and always keep on praying. Be alert. Be prayerful. Pray for yourself, but pray for others. And fourthly, we're not to assume immunity from the sifting process of life. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. The footnote in the ESV says the first you is in the plural, it's a general statement. He is designed to sift you. And Jesus says, all of you. The you in verse 32 is the singular, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The sifting process, I don't know whether you know what the sifting process was like. It was a repeated, swift and violent shaking of the wheat in a sieve 
to separate the wheat from the chaff. And it, usually in those days it would have been a lady, a man sometimes, but more often than not a lady would take a sieve and then proceed to shake the living daylights out of it, as it were. And as all the wheat was rattling around in the sieve, the chaff would go, the wheat would remain. And then there was a second process, gentler than the first. She would rock it back and forth to keep the final areas of chaff in a way that could be scooped out and thrown away. That was the process. And Jesus says to his disciples, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Violently shaken. Violently shaken. In other words, you will get your cages rattled. And what was true then is true today. You might be in the process that Jesus said Peter and the others would end up in. The sifting purpose of God where he actually employs Satan to work for your benefit in your life. Satan requested permission to have a go at the Lord's servant. Always under his control, but always in a, and always in a way where Jesus has the final word. The trials and the testings in your life and mine are only those that God allows. Job 1, 7 to 8. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and then from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan turned his fiery activity on Job. And again you find the same thing as he moves into the physical realm of his life in chapter 2. Listen, dear friend, to the limited degree that I understand buffeting in my own life. I know I ought not to ask for them to be removed. I ought not to be so naive as to think that I might be immune from these things. As the evil one comes and fires his darts into the moral realms of our lives. And into the realm of our preoccupation with things. Into the realm of our thought lives. So as to make us doubt the very word of God itself. Into the realms of our fears. We spoke this morning a bit about fear. The deep anxiety of life. Well, we worry about becoming ill. We worry about so many things. If ever you've known that. Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. And any sifting, moving, shaking, or burgling of the evil one in your life. Notice that he cannot do one thing. But that Christ allows it. He can never rattle you so hard as to remove you from his grasp. For no one and nothing will take you from his hand. But rattle you he will. Shake you he will. God allows him the liberty within his God-ordained limits. The evil one has no free, unlimited ability to have a go at the Lord's service. He cannot act against God's own, except that he's subject to the overruling and permissive authority of the risen Christ himself. 
There's an area of Christian doctrine that I've often, you know, I've been slow to enter because it's so largely ignored, very little understood, very little taught. Definitely true. Well, where, where should we finish? Definitely with a note of encouragement because the denial of Peter teaches me and teaches all of us that with God, failure is never final. If you look at the world today, failure is final. The cancel culture. If, the, if you did something wrong somewhere along the line, cancel it. Cancel. They want to cancel Churchill. You notice that? They want to cancel Churchill. They want to cancel Churchill for being racist. Well, if Churchill hadn't stood against the Nazis, there'd be a very, very, very different colour of racism here in this country today. But they want to cancel anybody because of something they may have done in a certain time in the past. Failure is never final. Because you or I might be here today and the very gaze of Christ meets ours as it met Peter's. And as Peter looked and he saw Jesus as perhaps he'd come from the upper room, we're often the Jewish courtyard structure of the day. The courtyard had been lower. It'd been like a balcony maybe. The room was above. And it may be that Christ was up on the balcony with Annas. And Peter was down here in the courtyard. And as Christ was led from Annas to Caiaphas, they crossed in the courtyard. The rooster crowed. Their eyes met. And Peter went out to weep bitterly. And my friend, that's the prerequisite for us all. That's the prerequisite for us all. Without that tearful, genuine repentance that I have sinned against God. That I have rebelled against God himself. We cannot expect the spiritual fullness and the blessing of God, which he longs to pour on those as he restores them to usefulness. But with God, my friend, failure is never final. The word of scripture which comes loudest in my ears through all of this is 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Do you bring those areas of sifting and buffeting before God? Those, those areas in your life of sifting and buffeting? My friend, we must. But there is truth in this. And take this from here that with God failure is never final because with repentance there is forgiveness he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins well Peter went out he repented he was wonderfully restored so I'd like you to, to, to finish on that note the note of encouragement that with God failure is never final because of the gospel may the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our good Amen